All right. As you make your way back to your seats. <laughs> this week, uh, I did that for a reason because we got to get some, some juice flowing here. You ready? Uh, this week, we begin a three-week look at a specific section of Scripture in 2 Corinthians. Uh, but before we get there, I do have kind of a general announcement, uh, kind of a big announcement to make uh, that uh, we all just need to be aware of. Uh, the NFL preseason began this week. We're just one more step closer to another championship for the Green Bay Packers. So, I mean, if... Listen, if you're not going to like the topic we talk about today, I had to get this one out of the way, at least. So, uh, no, listen, I, uh, I love football. I really do. I love baseball. I love sports. But, man, there's something about football. I mean, I can watch that game from the opening to the close. I, it doesn't matter who's losing by how much. I just love football. And the thing that I probably appreciate more about football than I do a lot of other sports is that it really is a collaborative effort. I mean, you need a team to win. A football game. You need a team to win a championship. Uh, so, contrary to how highly some quarterbacks, who should remain nameless, think of themselves, uh, it is a collective effort to win a game. And somebody once said this, players win games, teams win championships. And uh, that's true. That's true. But, honestly, that philosophy is seldom practiced in the world that we live in today. We live in a world that really highlights and honors individualism, which isn't inherently a bad thing until it begins to play out in how our society functions and how we even function as the church. Um, many times over, individuals are highlighted over the health of a community. I'm thinking back to a conversation I had uh, with a dad years ago. His son was six years old, and uh, there was a community sports program where we lived before. There weren't, really weren't any sports, organized sports, for kids up through middle school. So through eighth grade in the schools, there were no organized sports. Uh, it was just kind of a broken school system, so those just weren't available. So there was a really robust youth sports program in the community that was a community-based thing. And um, kids were pushed through there, and that was kind of the grooming grounds for getting them ready for high school basketball and, and football. And uh, I was having a conversation with this dad of this six-year-old boy, and uh, he was complaining because uh, any team would be privileged to have his kid on their team. I mean, he knew that his kid was gifted, that he had all the talent, that he had all of everything that's needed, but the coaches that he would talk to just would not listen to the dad and would not, would not put their kid, his kid in the position that he felt like his kid was destined for. My kid's got to play, you don't understand. Your team will benefit if you put my kid in this position. He was really struggling through that whole thing. Um, and so at the end of the conversation, his attitude was like, all right, well, then let them lose. If they don't want my son, then let that team lose. Again, the kid was six. Okay, so that's a whole other problem. It's a whole other conversation to have. But it's this individualism over the community idea in action at play. You play the game not for the benefit of just you, but for the benefit of all. Players win games. Teams win championships, which is why we start this in-depth look today at what it means for the church to be one when it comes to generosity. 
One in generosity. What does it look like for the church? That's you and me, for us. What does it look like for the church to participate in the, the grace of generosity as one, as a body? Okay. So let's get the usual stuff out of the way, all right? Uh, if you're new, we spend a few weeks every single August uh, speaking about stewardship. Uh, I get it that money is a sensitive topic in the church. I totally understand that, but uh, this is the sixth month mark, for the most part, into our church year. I know, normal people would start January 1st. We're not normal, so we start March 1st, and this is roughly the six-month mark, and so that's why next week or the week after, there's going to be a financial presentation up here so that you can know uh, where we're at financially, how the money is being used, different things like that. But um, we spend a few weeks in August every year talking about stewardship. And again, I get it that money and church are so cliche at this point that uh, the red flags go up immediately, immediately. If you're a person, if you're an organization that professes Jesus, but you lack transparency, you lack integrity, you lack a clear understanding and motive when it comes to biblical stewardship, listen, the world has got our number. <laughs> the world has got our number. So first things first, I don't ask anybody to do anything or consider anything that I myself am not willing to model or do myself. Uh, we as a church, we hold a very high view of transparent stewardship, handled with integrity and handled with focus. Our goal is the fulfillment of the mission that God's given us. Loving people, loving God, loving people, and serving the world. We structure our, our stewardship around that. Even this coming Wednesday, there's going to be a financial and management and development team that's going to be meeting. And the number one thing we're going to be talking about is not money. It's discipleship. So this really doesn't have anything to do with money, and that's going to be clearer as we progress. Now, if you're tensing up just a little bit, I want to challenge you, okay? Uh, let me challenge you a little bit. Pastor, if you talk about money, if you talk about it for three weeks, I mean, this is why young people are leaving the church. Listen, young people are leaving the church today because we did a really, really good job of teaching them what Jesus was like. And then they see the church not acting like him. That's why swaths of people are leaving the evangelical church. We can talk about this, and we can talk about this in a really, really productive way. I have personally no problem talking about financial integrity and stewardship. So what I want to ask you to do today is just honestly, just let the Holy Spirit speak to you. I am not the Holy Spirit. I had a guy in my church once tell me he was the Holy Spirit. Yeah, <laughs> that was a whole different ballgame. I'm not the Holy Spirit. I'm asking you to trust that the Holy Spirit would open your heart, and I think that if you do that, I really do, I think that you'll hear a message not like what you might expect that you would hear. If you allow the Holy Spirit to speak to your heart, I think actually what you'll hear is grace. That's what you'll hear, because generosity and grace, those go hand in hand. When you experience grace, what happens is you end up giving grace. And we're going to unpack that just a little bit. So, in our passage, in our passage today, we find a, a group of people that are so ridiculously generous that it's just not normal. It just doesn't make 
any sense at all. But there's a reason why they're so generous. And it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 7. So I'm going to kind of unpack this just a little bit. You'll see it on the screen. This is Paul writing. He says, And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. So he's, he's talking to the Corinthian churches, but he's talking about the Macedonian churches. He says, In the midst of a very severe trial, the Macedonian churches, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty, welled up in generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves, first of all, to the Lord, and then by the will of God, also to us. So we urged Titus just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. He said, but, but since you excel in everything, Corinthians, I mean, you guys are wealthy, you're wise, you know, you're, you're well-known, your tweets go viral, whatever. You, you've, got the, you've got a lot going for you, and there's a lot of energy and things taking place, but, you know, you've got everything, faith, speech, knowledge, in complete, complete earnestness and in love, we have kindled in you. See that you also excel in this grace of giving. This grace of giving. So Paul is writing to a church in the city of Corinth, which is just this hub of commerce. Anybody and everybody knew Corinth. Okay? And he was reminding them actually of a commitment that they'd already made to another group of Christians in Jerusalem. So what had happened was somebody had gone out and said, hey, the Jerusalem church is suffering some significant persecution. They're really having a hard time. And, and there's a lot of bad stuff going on. So uh, Titus goes around and, and he goes, they, they go to the, the Corinthian church and they're like, hey, we're going to take an offering. Would you guys make a commitment? We got to help our brothers in Jerusalem out. He goes to these other churches. Somewhere along the line, Macedonia comes in. We'll get to that here in just a second. But the persecution that's going on with the Jerusalem church, the very first church, is very, very real. It's very real. The Romans were brutal towards them. The religious establishment, was, were, they were totally just jockeying for position and money. And so they were brutal to these new Christians. Their businesses were being shut down. Their families were being torn apart. So, I mean, it was a bad day to be a Christian, from our perspective, in Jerusalem. So it was, it was really, really rough. Was famine, poverty, persecution, uh, all this stuff was taking place. So Paul is reminding the Corinthian church, look, you made a commitment previously. And evidently, as you read more, they're, not, they're just not following through on it. They're not doing it. And so Paul's just trying to help them understand, look, you said yes, so let your yes be yes. Follow through on your commitment. And so then Paul introduces... This third group of people, the Macedonians. Okay, the Macedonian church had already contributed to Jerusalem. They, they'd fulfilled some kind of a promise to the church in Jerusalem. And Paul takes the Macedonian church and he holds them up as an example of what it looked like for them to be one in their generosity for others. The Macedonian church, and I want to make sure we understand this, was experiencing 
a lot of joy. They were experiencing what it really looked like for them to participate in this grace of generosity. They saw the grace of God at work amongst them. God was using them in a powerful way, and they had joy in that. It was, it was fun to be a part of the Macedonian church, and their response in that joy was generosity. It was generosity. So with that in mind, I just kind of set that whole situation up. Let's walk through this just a little bit. This is kind of laying the groundwork for where we're going to go in the next couple of weeks. But I want us to look at this, keeping in mind the big question. Why would the Macedonians do this? Why would they be so joyful in their generosity? We're going to get to this. But the first thing is, is in their affliction, they had joy. We need to understand some things about the Macedonian Christians. In their affliction, they had joy. It says, in the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in generosity. Which, let's just be honest, the very, this is the very first indication that these are not normal people. They're not, I mean, when all of a sudden trials and afflictions come into my life, it's not like I sit down and I'm like, oh, goody. I'm super excited now. That's just not normal, okay? They had persecution from the Romans. Income was limited due to, to heavy-handed Roman taxation and just brutality. The religious establishment, even with the Macedonians, didn't like them at all, at all. Um, we know that they were in abject poverty, the Macedonians were. And yet, in the middle of all of that, somehow they still had this joy about them. There was still something going on in their hearts and in their lives. That they still exuded this joy, even under this massive, massive pressure. Affliction and joy do not sound like they belong in the same sentence, do they? They just don't sound like they go together. As I say that, I'm 100% aware that there are people in this room right now. There are people online right now going through horrible circumstances. You're facing a very real truth. It's that God's work, God's love for us, doesn't mean that you're exempt from the pain of life. doesn't mean you're exempt from the pain of death. Job situations, financial situations, family situations, relationships... God's love for you does not exempt you from those things. Real life, real life is the grace of God in the middle of that affliction. Not necessarily in place of it. And that's hard. That's really, really hard. So why are the Macedonians different? Why are they so generous? And they give generously out of their joy of their life, out of the joy of their heart. Why are they like this? in the middle of their affliction. Their joy didn't revolve around their circumstances. That sounds like a really preachy answer and a really pastor-trite statement, but their joy was not centered on whether or not things in their life were going well. Their joy was settled on the fact that they'd been given grace upon grace upon grace by this loving God who rescued them, who gave them freedom, who showed them unmerited love over and over and over again. That's the source of the joy in their lives, okay? And that leads to the second thing that we see. In their poverty, they were generous. So in their poverty, they were generous. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy, their extreme poverty welled up in generosity. Now, common sense dictates that the opposite should happen. 
this is where I get challenged personally. I just, I'll be completely vulnerable with you. I struggle with this part just a little bit. My mind is, hey man, we should get ahead of the game. I mean, if, if you're struggling in these areas, the common sense response is you take care of your own. You, you take care of where you need to be. Then you're able to give. Then you can do what needs to be done in those. In fact, that's the responsible thing to do, isn't it? This reminds me. Um, so I've been on a plane more times than I ever thought I ever would be in my entire life. But every time we go to Guatemala, I do this thing where uh, I'm on the plane and I'm sitting there and I've heard the speech from the flight attendants so many times, I don't hear it anymore. Okay? You just, maybe, maybe you're like that with me. Rich, I've heard you talk so many times, I just don't hear you anymore. Okay? But I've heard the flight attendants say things so many times that I just don't, but I know what they're saying. And so what I start to do is I start looking around at other people. And so here's, here's the spiel. The spiel is at some point, if the, the pressure in the cabin and in the plane goes down, what might happen is the masks, these goofy-looking orange cones will fall, tubes of oxygen or, or whatever is going to be pumped out of those. You're, they're going to come out of the ceiling, which is scary. They're going to come out of the ceiling. You need to grab those. You need to put those on. But the instructions are always the same. Parents, if you're sitting next to your child, Put yours on first. Put yours on first. And I totally get it. I totally get it. What good are you going to be if you're fumbling and trying to get that mask on your kid and you can't breathe? You're running out of oxygen and you're going to black out. And so they're like, you put yours on first, then you take care of your kid. And I, I do. I love walk, looking around the cabin for where the parents are. And you can almost be like, mm -mm, that ain't going to happen. We're going to take care of the kid first. But it, it's that logic that's in, in our minds that if we take care of ourselves first, then we'll be able to take care of other things. Okay. During their affliction, they had joy. They had joy. Um, I struggle with that. And if you've ever been through premarital counseling with me, and we've talked about budgets and, and all that kind of different stuff, um, we talk about all this kind of stuff. How do you get yourself to a place where generosity and giving is just normal? It's just a normal part of, of who you are. And to understand this Macedonian church, I, I hesitate to use the word reckless because it, it feels irresponsible. I don't think that they were being irresponsible. They just, they just understood a few things. But to understand how reckless their generosity seems to be, there's actually two words for poverty in the Greek language. And uh, one of those words means having less than others. So if there's a baseline of what people have, one way to talk about poverty is that there's a group of people that lives under that baseline. Under that baseline, you have less. I learned this growing up in the, in the cafeteria when I was going to school. See, we were far from destitute, but we didn't have a whole lot. And I learned as I was sitting around tables with, uh, with my schoolmates in their nice shiny lunch boxes and prepackaged treats and special drinks and all that stuff, I showed up with a brown paper bag and a bologna sandwich, some stale chips, and a nickel for chocolate milk that was kind of warm, which is gross. Okay. 
I remember the day that came when somehow we came across a Captain Caveman. Captain Caveman. If you don't know him, look him up. One of the best cartoons ever. Captain Caveman, Lunchbox. Okay? I just thought, I've arrived. I've made it. Okay? But here's this deal. I understood that there was this I didn't have, and these kids were different than me. So that's one kind of poverty. I hate to use that in reference to me because I just don't think we were that, that poor. But then there's another word for poverty, which is no paper sack. Like, you don't have anything to carry anything that you do have around in. That's the other kind of poverty, and that's the poverty that Paul is talking about when he comes to the Macedonian churches. They didn't know where they were going to get their nickel for their milk. Okay. That's a different level. It's a different place. So let me translate the radicalness of what the Macedonians were doing. They gave when they had need. Not because somebody else had need, but they gave even in the middle of their own need. And the key there is they did it. Not one person, not a couple people who float the bill. They did it. We all do it. That's so counterintuitive to the way the world works. And if we're honest, how a lot of Christians operate as well. I want you to hear me straight. The natural response might be, I can't cover my own bases. I can't take care of my own thing. And I, I totally get that. I totally get that. I've been there. Life is not cheap. This afternoon, Shelly and I, we take two of our three kids to college. And in two weeks, the third one will be there. I understand that life is not cheap. Okay. I understand that. But I want to throw something out there. Is one of the reasons we struggle with generosity, is one of the reasons we struggle with giving linked to maybe how we view and manage the resources that we do have. I'm not talking about the resources we don't have yet, but how are we doing handling what we do have? How are you handling what God has already placed in your life? Have you, here it is, the B word, have you ever built a budget? Maybe you have a budget. Here's the next question. Do you use it? Do you use it? Not so you can give to the church, and I want to make sure you understand that. But by being effective stewards, you can have joy because of what God has placed into your life and acknowledge that he's good. He's good. I want to throw this QR code on the screen. You'll see it up there on the screen. If you want to, you can pull your phone out. This is a brief form. If you'd like to learn more about building a budget and managing your finances, do a screenshot. Wait, your phones are out. Hang on. All right, very nice. All right, there we go. That was gross. That was, that was cringy. That was cringy. Okay. Do you need help? Do you need help? Look, um, this is an area, and it, I know that this sounds off, but this is an area where Shelly and I operate with high integrity. We do. Uh, we are determined, no matter where we find ourselves, to not only be good stewards of what God's already given to us, but be generous no matter where we are in life. And that happens on purpose. It happens through intentionality. It doesn't happen by accident or because we're lucky or, you know, God's blessed us more than he's blessed other people 
I think we just are on top of what we need to be on top of so that we're good stewards of what God's given us. All of that said, why were the Macedonians generous in their poverty? They understood the grace of God in their own lives. They were so confident in God's grace, they believed he would honor their obedience, which is revealed quickly in a third observation. They gave freely without coercion. They gave freely without coercion. That means force, manipulation. It means enforcement, harassment, intimidation, threats, arm twisting, pressure, whatever. And maybe you feel like you're getting that from me right now. Uh, it, there was no coercion in their giving. Okay? It says, I testified that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. I want to make sure you understand, they weren't writing checks that they couldn't cover. That's not what they were doing. They weren't doing that. Instead, they were so united. These Macedonian churches were so united and so confident in the grace of God in their lives and in their churches that not only did they surpass what anybody even thought, I almost have in my mind that there must have been some side conversation where Paul is saying to Titus, look, man, as we kind of survey all these churches and we're asking them to bail out the Jerusalem church, Listen, man, the Macedonians have gotten hit hard. Let's just kind of, I mean, you might just share that we're doing this thing, but man, let's just leave them alone. They've got enough to carry without bothering them. Okay. Now, they were begging for the opportunity not just to be a part of it, but to actually give more. To actually give more. There was something different going on with those people. They were not normal. They were not normal. 2 Corinthians 9, 7 says, Each of you, me, you, should give what you have decided in your heart to give. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, there are instructions for how to give, and we're going to talk about that in the next couple of weeks. But the point of this issue of generosity is this. God does not want your giving out of compulsion. He doesn't want your giving because you should. Because of obligation. That's not why God wants your giving. Uh, like somehow you're earning God's love or you're earning God's favor by giving. Or worse, that by giving somehow you earn my attention or the notice of other people or positions of influence that you gain because of your giving. God wants you to experience the same joy the Macedonians experience. And that's not going to come from a sense of obligation or guilt or giving to gain something. It's not where it's going to come from. Listen, the world is literally littered. Littered with churches, Christians, and church leaders, and even nonprofit Christian organizations that do not do themselves any favors in how they conduct themselves financially at all. Personally, I don't see the benefit. I've never seen the upside of not operating with transparency and integrity and high commitment to biblical stewardship. I've never seen the upside. Have you ever heard a conversation where one of those things has gone wrong and it ended well? There's never an upside to any of that. I want God's grace poured out on this church. I want God's grace poured out 
on my life. I want to experience as a church the joy of the work of God in our midst as we, as we, not just me, not you, we, as we continue, as Paul says, in the grace of generosity. I want that for us. I'm jealous for us in that. We, not I, not you, us, one. That's why we take advantage of this series, to make that financial presentation when it comes to our six-month progress as a church. It's why we have policies. It's why we have procedures in place. We have a high commitment to financial integrity, and it's, it is not a coincidence that God honors that. If you don't know that he does, watch. There's not many times I will put God on the hook there, but you watch what happens when you honor God in this way. We believe, I hope we believe, that God is doing something at real life. I hope that we believe that. That you need to have certainty that when you give, when you give, it is being used to lead people to love God. It is being used to lead people to love people and to serve the world in the region and in the world. And as a church, we're, we're not trying to get you to give. I want to make sure you understand this. We want to join and be givers. My goal is not to, give you to get you to give to the church. There's a difference. Listen, convincing you to give is treating you like a donor. You're not a donor. Donors decide what they give or don't give to. Donors, donors sometimes tend to give to things that they have no skin in the game. I mean, there's just, oh, I'll donate to that or I'll donate to this. Many times donors are detached from what they donate to. That's not the church. We have a different kingdom ethic going on here. We need to turn that whole thing upside down. We don't solicit donors in this church. We join together as givers in the pattern of Jesus. That's being one together in generosity because it's who we are. It's who we are. So what does that mean? kind of put myself out there if you haven't figured this out. It means that I, as your pastor, I am operating with a huge assumption. This is my assumption. My assumption is that you're actually walked through those doors today for a reason, that you want to grow in your relationship with God. That's the assumption I operate with. So, I mean, again, football starting up, why in the world would you be here? <laughs> my, My assumption is that you walk through these doors and that you sit here because you want to grow. You want to be more like Jesus. You want to know God more and be a part of something bigger than yourself. That's the assumption. I'm not, actually I have, I literally as a pastor have no right to have any other assumption. I have to function with that assumption that that's what brings you here this morning. That you're here because you want to live the life that God would really like for you to live and experience the blessing of that. I believe that you do want to experience the grace of generosity that those same Macedonian Christians experienced. Why would people, why would people who who so easily could have been recipients of this kind of an offering, why would they be the ones that modeled what it meant to give, to beg to give, because they gave themselves first? They gave themselves first. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then 
by the will of God also to us. Generosity, giving, offering, tithing, none of it, none of it is a money thing at all. It never is. At the end of the day, before any generosity, those Macedonians gave because they gave themselves first. They gave themselves first. What does that mean? I'm, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself. Next week, we're going to look at verse 9, specifically, and the model uh, for giving, which is Jesus. Verse 5, when it says they gave themselves, they were just doing what Jesus did. They were following Jesus' lead, his example. It would be so much easier, trust me, it would be so much easier just to give you some reasons why you should give. Have you put a commitment card? You know, I could have, we could have done seat drops. Commitment cards and say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to give to God for the next 90 days, and if it doesn't work well for me, then the church will pay me back and all, whatever. I mean, I've done all that stuff before. You're either going to do it or you're not. I mean, that's, that's kind of where I'm at with this. Uh, and it would be so much easier if I could put a card in your hand have you fill out that commitment? We could play some music. Ben could come back up here, and uh, you could kind of march up here to the front, and you could lay that commitment card on the altar. This is my financial commitment to the church, the work of God through Real Life Community Church. Here's the problem with that. I want you to hear me straight. God does not want your financial commitment on the altar. He wants you on the altar. <laughs> okay? And so... I did not expect that, but thank you. I feel so much better now. Listen, that's just the truth. I mean, Romans chapter 12 says, you are a living sacrifice. You and I need to put ourselves on the altar literally every, every single day. It does not make sense that when you put your whole self on the altar, God's pretty much got every area of your life. If you will keep yourself there. That doesn't mean there's, there's a day that comes where you're kind of like, Mm, I want to keep everything but this pinky. I want that one off the altar. Or this hand, or that. You've got, to keep, you've got to keep bringing it back and put it all on the altar every single day. He does not want you to fill out a financial commitment and put it on an altar. He wants you to put yourself there. This is why they had the joy that they had. It's because they understood that whatever they, they did have wasn't theirs. Everything about them belonged to God. Their homes, their neighbors, their, their food that they did, the, the nickels that they could rub together, all of it, any of it, it was his already. They had an incredible Lord over their life who loved them enough to die for them, who gave himself for them. He gave his life. They were living sacrifices. That's why they gave with so much joy. Have I given myself first to the Lord? That's where the question begins. This is, this is never about money. It's never about money. The Bible tells us that for the joy, the joy set before Jesus, he endured the cross. He entered affliction because it would afford us joy in our salvation. When Paul, in verses 6 and 7, tells the Corinthians to continue in this act of grace, grace, unmerited favor, when he says, would you continue in this act of grace, he's saying, when you give, 
you're looking like Jesus. You're looking like Jesus. If you receive grace, the natural response is that you will want to give grace. May God lead us as we enter into generosity as one, as one. I'm going to ask you to stand. I'm going to pray for you. Uh, Shelly, my wife, is going to come, and she's going to lead us in our real-life uh, benediction as we close. You'll see it on the screen. But as she comes, I'm going to ask her to come at this time, and uh, let me pray for us. Father, and Father, I feel so heavy-handed sometimes, and it's not my intent. My intent is to model and lead what it looks like to live this life of generosity, but not for the sake of being able to lead, but because of what you've done for me. And so today, Father, I just, I put myself back on the altar again today, recognizing that all I have, everything that I've experienced in this life, and everything that I will experience in the days ahead is a gift. Didn't do anything to earn it, didn't do anything to deserve it. It is all just free grace. It's, it's this incredible love that you pour out for us each and every day. So Father, continue to speak to our hearts, speak to my heart. As we go through this, Father, what sometimes is a sensitive topic, uh, would you use your Holy Spirit to navigate us, direct our minds and our hearts and our spirit, Father, in the way that we need to go, and remind us to keep ourselves on that altar. We love you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, read with me our benediction. May the bond of peace of Jesus Christ go with us as we seek to love God as one. May he guide us in humility, gentleness, and patience as we love people as we have been loved. May the compassion of Jesus Christ be in us as we serve the world in word and deed. May he bring it together again, rejoicing as his children as we live in real life with Christ. Thank you for being here today. Go in peace.